Welcome to Newsworthy with Norrisworthy. Get ready for some awesome. Hey friends, before we get to Dr. Greg Boyd, let me tell you about Podbean. Podbean Podcast Hosting offers a simple, affordable way for churches and religious organizations and leaders to share their message. Now with the Podbean app, sermons or other teachings, whatever message you have, can be recorded and published directly from your phone. It's so easy, even I can use it. I've used Podbean for many years, have had great uh, experience working with them, and I bet you would have the exact same positive experience. So if you're interested in getting your messages, your teachings online, go to Podbean. They'll take care of you. And go to podbean.com backslash newsworthy for a little discount. Now, on to the podcast today with Greg Boyd. All right, friends. Welcome back to the show. Today we have uh, back on the show, Dr. Greg Boyd. How are you, sir? I'm doing wonderful. Good to be here. Well, um, we met last year, a year ago, actually at this time in Malibu, California, doing a podcast with like five different people at like midnight, and we survived. Yeah, you did. It was a fun time. <laughs> yeah. you right. And and yeah. you're you're like you had a BFF session with Richard Beck. You guys did something together a couple of years ago. Came up for a weekend. Yeah, we were both uh, uh, keynote speakers at a conference and uh, really hit it off. He's a good guy. Yeah, yeah. I, I, Richard uh, is a family friend. He and my dad uh, teach together, and so my oh, okay. my dad was actually Richard's first psychology professor when he was an undergrad. And oh, uh, so, yeah, it was uh, it was nice seeing that bromance bloom, some back and forth on the blog. It was, uh, it's nice. It's nice. Yeah. Yeah. All right. Yeah. Let's just jump right in. You've got a new book. Uh, and I, I don't think I should even call it a book. It's uh, it's almost like a uh, encyclopedia. I mean, there is a, a massive amount of content. <laughs> Come on. Two volumes. The title is Crucifixion of the Warrior God. And I've done about 230 podcasts, Greg, and I've read just about the entire book for every podcast I've done. And I can't say that anymore uh, because yours is this massive, massive, overarching, like massive project to fix this huge problem. So first of all, how, how, how far did you get? Well, I got I got a good ways in. I didn't even get to chapter like the second volume. It's oh, you didn't. The, but that, that's where that, that's where it takes off. Now there's over six hundred pages in the first one. Yeah, I know it. That just lays the foundation for that <laughs> application comes uh, in the second volume. That's it. Crucifixion thesis. That's where you like. What do you actually do with the, these these stories? The New Testament is nowhere near that long. I mean, it, this is the entire story <laughs> yeah. of Jesus is told in twenty four chapters. Yeah, you, you saw what I had to do. I got to take. I got to like. I, I got to deal with the whole problem, and I got to come up with the, you know lay lay the you know it, 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 the is, if a person is really sold already that Jesus is the definitive revelation of God and the revelation that surpasses all previous ones. And really sold that the cross is the thematic center of everything Jesus was about, and that all scripture is supposed to point to the cross. You can pretty much skip chapters two through five. Okay, that's that, that's right. I you know unpack all of that. But I want to make sure that people it, you only will appreciate what I'm doing if if you really feel the force of the the cross centeredness mm-hmm. of the New Testament and the cross centered way of, of of looking at God and the whole idea that. That scripture is to bear witness to that, because that's what really aggravates this problem of Old Testament violence. Yeah. 
uh, it's not, they're not just ugly and and you know sometimes unethical, but uh, it, it, the challenge isn't to make them look a little better or to even show that they're consistent with with Jesus. The challenge is to show how how they actually point to the cross. Yeah. And I, only if a person appreciates that problem are they going to go for the, my solution to it. So I have to Fair invite enough. you on. Hey, I, I'm not the one writing the book on this subject, so I, I, I'm not smart enough to, to tackle this one. So I'm glad you are. And I, I, I've been a fan of your work. I, I think I started reading you when Myth of a Christian Nation came out in, when was that, late 90s? No, no, that was 2006. Oh, okay, 2006. Listen, to, yeah. I don't want to call myself a podrishner of yours, uh, just because I don't like the title, but I think that's what I would be called during a. <laughs> it's a podrishner. I invented that. Yeah, <laughs> you're not parishioner. You're a podrishner. I think it's. Hey, just- if I would have come up with it, I would have used it, but I didn't. Um, <laughs> it's someone else's turn. I, I okay. mean, I would have. I, I wish I would have come up with it, to be honest. But so, so I followed <laughs> your work. I love your preaching, and that cross-centered nature of it is one of the things I really connect to with your work and. Uh, so I, I've, I've loved following your work over the years, and one of the things that I liked, um, especially the confessional nature that you do all your ministry, it seems, uh, even in the book, you said you started out to write a different book than what this turned out to be. Yeah. W- when right. you set out, what were you initially trying to, you were trying to do the best spin take on it. Could you explain what that means? Well, it's just the, the, the typical sort of evangelical way of, of addressing these things is that um, uh, you, you you assume that that you have to, well, you try to defend the portraits. You try to like show how why did God have to say go kill them all, men, women, children, infants, and even animals? Why why would God do that? Why did God have to incinerate the cities? Why did God? So you try to d- defend these things, uh, put the best possible spin on it, uh, make it look justified. And, and so I, I was I assume that if you believe in the inspiration of Scripture, that's what you have to do. Mm-hmm. Um, and and so I started to write that book ten years ago. Uh, Kevin collected all the best arguments I had you know, for the last 20 years. I put them all together, put all the violent texts together. There's over a thousand of them. And they're quite overwhelming when you see them all at one time. And then I started to write this book and I got 50 pages into it and realized that it, it, this book, it just sucks. It's just, it's, 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 it's not convincing at all. And there's holes in them. Even as I'm writing them, it's like, oh no, I could, I could sink that ship really easy. You know, there's a whole thing. What about this? And I finally just like, I just gave up. Um, and, and then the, the, that was when I really came to see that the problem isn't tr- – the, the challenge isn't to put the best possible spin on them. The challenge is to show how they, along with all Scripture, points to the cross. Right. And so uh, that, that requires a completely different reframe, and that's what kind of set me on a, a course that was led to this book. So you initially start off with this best spin, so you're trying to take what uh, – texts of terror is what I've called them. I, I stole that from Barbara Brown Taylor, like conquest narrative, right, right. the – uh, genocide, rape, all this terrible stuff. Um, I, I think it was, uh, uh, Triple had it before. Uh, she invented the coin text of story. Who cares? Okay, go hey, ahead. I, well, Barbara Brown Taylor's been on the podcast, so I'm going to give it to her. The other person hasn't been on. So who, she got it from, from Phyllis Triple. Oh, okay. Well, fair enough. We don't want to disrespect uh, Phyllis. Okay. Who, the point is, there's some terrible text in there. Whoever came up with the term, um, maybe it was one of your pod listeners. But... Uh, okay, so there's these terrible passages, and the the best spin take on this is we can massage it and make it seem like it's not that bad. But now your move is you don't think that these texts can't even be justified. A- explain what you mean by that. Well, even if they could make it justified, you try to give the best reasons for why God might have done this. 
And I found that there's just so many holes in that. But even if you could do that, even if you succeeded, you still haven't done the most important thing, which is to show how these terrible, horrendous portraits of God point to, how does that portrait of God saying, I want you to go and kill everything that breathes in this region of Canaan, so slaughter every last Hittite and Hivite and termite and <laughs> headbite. Uh, and, and how do portraits of God like that point to the self-sacrificial Nonviolent love of God revealed on the cross. Mm-hmm. That's the challenge. And so justifying it isn't even the point, mm-hmm. really. Uh, you said a second ago, if you were going to hold to the inspiration of Scripture and this, uh, later in the book, you talk about uh, the dismissal solution, um, which is an option you don't want to go down. How, how would you hold the tension of high view of Scripture and not wanting to go into what you're calling the dismissal solution? Sure. So and that, that was exactly the conundrum that, that led me to the view that, that I have, where I, I, I don't feel I'm free. As I, as I read them, Jesus endorses the whole Old Testament, and if I call him Lord, I'm not free to disagree with his theology. Mm-hmm. And so um, uh, I confess all this to be God-breathed. This is inspired. And yet there are portraits here that contradict, fundamentally contradict the, what the, kind of the God that Jesus reveals. Um, and so how do I uh, reconcile these things? And Origen, a second, third century uh, theologian, taught me some, he gave me a profound lesson. At this time in my life when I'm wrestling with this, because he wrestled with scripture all the time and, and uh, was very honest about it. And, and he thought that the portraits of God in the Old Testament, engaging in all his violence, contradicted what we learned about God and Jesus Christ. And therefore, we couldn't accept, accept the surface value or the surface meaning of them. So what he taught was this, is that when you come upon conundrums in scripture or material that's unworthy of God, that's his phrase, uh, don't get don't get mad. Don't reject it. I uh, don't you know, uh, even if you can't accept the surface meaning, don't reject it. Uh, rather, you wait on God and ask the Holy Spirit and keep on researching. And, and he says, inevitably, the Holy Spirit will reveal a deeper truth buried, a treasure buried in, 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 behind this unworthy material that will uh, show you yeah, how, how this material actually does glorify mm-hmm. God. And so that's what I did with all these violent texts of the, of the Bible. I convinced that God really looks like he does on the cross, that that reveals the true nature mm-hmm. of God. And here's what these texts say about him. Um, I just I just look at them uh, through the lens of the cross. And for several months was just in this really terrible state of uh, cognitive dissonance. Mm-hmm. But uh, then at some point I began to see how – I began to see – it's like one of those magic eye pictures, you know, where the, the, those, it looks like wallpaper. But if you look at it the right way – all of a sudden, a three-dimensional object will rise out of it. And I began to have that kind of experience where I could see the cross, the beautiful cross in the depths of the ugly portraits of God in the Old oh, Testament. Can you give give an example of what that would look like? You get- Well, it, it, I, I'll, I'll, I'll take how, how I, I, it, it came about, uh, and then I could get to understand what it looks, what it looks like. Um, the, it, I asked the question, how does the cross reveal God? Because if you look at the cross with a natural eye, it just looks like a, a God-forsaken, crucified criminal. Um, and, and I'd never heard that question asked before, but as soon as I asked it, it seemed like the most obvious question in the world to ask. How, why, you look at this guy hanging on, on a tree, and how does that reveal God? How is that the definitive revelation of God? And then I realized it's not what we see on the surface that is the revelation of God. Uh, you know, if I'm a believer and you're a non-believer and we look at the cross, we, we both see the same thing. That's not what reveals God. But what reveals God is, is when you can, uh, by faith, you know the rest of the story. You know what else is going on. You're able to look through the ugly surface of the cross 
And now you by faith see and receive the revelation that it's God Almighty, uh, the all-holy God, stepping an infinite distance to become our sin and to become our curse and to take on this hideous mm-hmm. appearance. Okay, so uh, th- that's what reveals God. It, it, the, the cross becomes for the believer a sort of two-way mirror. You know, If you look at a two-way mirror and the light on the other side of the mirror isn't turned on, all you see is a reflection of yourself. Okay, that, that's where the cross is to the non-believer. But if you turn on that mirror, now you can see through the service and see what else is going on behind the scenes. And that's what happens with the cross. So then, if this is what God really is like, it's what God has always been like. And, and that means it's, this is what God was like when he breathed the scripture, when he, when he breathed the Bible all throughout history. Uh, and he breathed all that scripture for the purpose of bearing witness to the cross. So in light of that, <clears throat> doesn't it make sense to ask the question, where else might we find God in scripture revealing himself the way he does on the cross? Where else might he uh, be, uh, where else might we find uh, portraits of God that, are ugly on the surface because they reflect the sin that he's bearing. But if, if, if where else may we find portraits where we need to exercise faith to look through the surface because we know what God's really like. We look through the surface and we can see God humbly stooping to bear the sin of his people. Uh, and so what reveals God to us in these portraits is not the surface. The surface tells a lot about the people that God had to deal with. They actually thought God was capable of these things. Uh, but what reveals God to us is that we know that God was stooping to meet his people where they're at and to take on an appearance that reflects the ugliness of the sin that he's bearing. So when he uh, commands people to commit genocide, he's, you're saying God is taking on the appearance of sinful humanity. Well, what I'd say is this, that uh, using the cross is my criteria for always for what God does or doesn't do, right? Because mm-hmm. I know God is real than the cross. So I want to read all scriptures through that, through that lens. Um, as I do that, uh, when I come upon uh, portraits of God saying, go and slaughter them all, every man, woman, child, and infant, um, it's interesting that the only one who ever hears that command is Moses. Everyone else has to, uh, they just trust Moses. Um, even Joshua, when he repeats the command, he says, do according as, as Moses has commanded us, um, which raises the question, should, we, should they have believed him? And even more importantly, should we believe him? Now, Paul says that if we or anyone else or an angel from heaven preaches any other gospel than what we preach, let him be anathema. Uh, well, I, I would think that the command to go slaughter an entire population of people engaged in genocide and do it as an act of worship. I mean, that, that was part of the, the concept of harem, uh, to, yeah. to put them on the van. It was you sacrifice these children to God. So you're, you know, here the Bible forbids child sacrifices, but these portraits of God have them commanding them to make child sacrifices and adult sacrifices and animal sacrifices. So when I look at those portraits, um, what, what I see, Luke, is, is, is this. that I, God wanted them to be in, in the promised land, for sure. But I, I, in that, it, w- w- So Yahweh says go in the promised land, but what Moses hears is go slaughter them all. Because that's what it means to go take someone's property in the uh, uh, ancient Eastern world. Mm-hmm. Um, and, 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 so, and God, he's, the God revealed on Calvary is a non-coercive God. A God who uh, he won't, won't lobotomize people into having true conceptions of him. So he influences them as much as he can, but he has to accommodate their fallen views of him as much as necessary. He won't lobotomize them otherwise. And what we see in Scripture is, is the outworking of that. God's influence combined with uh, the, the sin that he has to accommodate. And, and this, is, this is why throughout history he's been doing what he does on the cross. He, 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 he's willing to stoop as low as he's got to go to meet his people where he's at. What I found, Luke, was this, that... When I took this cross-centered way of reading scripture, 
knowing that God really looks like Jesus Christ. And Jesus would never command children to be slaughtered under any circumstances. So I know that that part comes from Moses, not God. But when I started to read this, you find confirmations of its accuracy all over the place. That's how the book got to be so long. So, for example, did you know, I, mean, I never noticed this before I started reading the Bible through the lens of the cross, that you find uh, several commands uh, that, that or plans of God where the, the children of Israel are going to enter into the, the promised land in a nonviolent way. At one point he says, hey, I, I'm going to send uh, pests ahead of you. And they'll make the, the, the land so pesty that the people are going to migrate off the land. Mm -hmm. uh, and then you can inhabit it. But I'm going to do it slowly, he says. Because if I did it quickly, then well, then it would become overrun with, with wild you know, vegetation and animals. So he does it slowly. Another, in, another point he says, um, I'm going to have the land vomit them out. They've defiled the land. So I'm going to make the land vomit them out. Um, it will become unfruitful. And but then he, again, he says, I'll do it slowly so that that uh, it doesn't get overrun with with wildlife. So here you know, that those look like like a lot more like Jesus ways of of relocating the population. Yeah. You know, have them migrate yeah. off and have the children of Israel migrate on. But see, um, it, it, we hear what we want to hear. We're capable of hearing. And, and the ancient Israelites, I don't think we're capable of hearing that. They, they required a level of trust and confidence they, they, they couldn't muster up. That was too, you know. That was too unlike everything else they knew about the ancient and Eastern gods. That was that was too radical. It was like when Jesus tells his disciples, you know, I'm going to go suffer and die and get crucified. It goes in one ear and out the other. So when Jesus actually gets arrested and crucified and dies, they're shocked. Mm -hmm. Even though he's been talking to them for three years about this, because their brains they expected a totally different kind of Messiah, and that's what God's always been dealing with. And so um, I, I think that uh, God said, I want you to go to the promised land. Uh, but all the times he says it, saying, I'm going to do it nonviolently, if you trust me, uh, that goes in one ear and out the other. What they hear is, go slaughter them all. Yeah. So in, in what you call the dismissal solution that people like Pete Enns um, has encouraged or has promoted is the idea that based on archaeological evidence of the last hundred years, that the conquest narrative as we understand it may not have been what actually historically took place. Right, right. And that's an option that you're, you don't seem to be a big fan of because you, uh, because it seems that argument is that it didn't ever really take place. The violence that they're describing, uh, Pete uses the illustration of like a blowfish. This is a group of people pretending to be bigger, more powerful they are. They tell these stories as a way of intimidating their neighbors, but they aren't historically true. <laughs> you're not a big fan right. of that option. What do you... Explain. Well, here's why. Here's why. Because see, I, 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 I appreciate that that, that Peter Enns and these guys get they, they they really get the problem. They see that these pictures are incompatible, and I, I appreciate that. Uh, they know that they, you can't defend these. Uh, if I had to go that route, I'd go that route. But the truck, I, I don't. I agree with them that these pictures are unacceptable. If you embrace, you know, if you trust that God looks like Jesus Christ, you can't accept these. But that's not the stopping point. It, it, it's. If you stop there, see, the problem is they think they've solved the problem by saying it didn't happen. Now, even if I agreed with them, you know, because there is some historical evidence, you know, that it didn't happen. Um, and, and uh, but see, to me, that doesn't matter. <laughs> it's the text that is inspired. Jesus, when, when, he, when, he, when he was referring to the, to the narrative as, as inspired in the Word of God, he's referring to the text. And the text doesn't get its authority by, by being corroborated by someone's version of history. It gets its authority because Jesus uh, gave it. And, and so it's the story that's inspired. And therefore, I don't think I am free to just simply dismiss anything. 
Um, yeah, I, I may reject the surface meaning, but it still is God-breathed for the purpose of revealing the God who's, who's ultimately revealed on the cross. And so I, I have to keep on digging. And, and I, the reason why I'm opposed to that approach is that, that uh, they quit too early. You, you gave up. Uh, now, now, all of them will find some lessons in it. Like it tells us what God is not like. And, and it tells us that, you know, God's always had to deal with these ugly pictures of God. And humans have always had a tendency to see God in violent ways. And, yeah, so it tells us a lot about human beings. But what does it tell us about God? And, and it, I agree that it doesn't tell us that God's violent. But if we look at it through the lens of the cross, it will reveal God to us the same way the cross does. Because God is stooping. He, he, he continues to be in covenantal solidarity with his people, even though they think he's actually capable of this kind of horrendous, ungodly, god-awful violence. Mm-hmm. One of your quotes is that twisted and culturally conditioned hearts of the biblical authors, th- that's where that comes from. They're, they're misunderstanding the heart of God. Um, so part of the issue is, if historically that's not true, the conquest narrative, maybe it happens more according to what archaeological evidence has pointed to in the last hundred years, the text still has an issue where God... It's portrayed yeah. as genocide. Yeah, even if the his, historicity isn't true, there's still a moral problem that God called people to do that, right? It's still a, it's still a God-breathed picture uh, that we have to wrestle with. Yeah. Uh, and it's got something to say about God and has to somehow point to the cross. And so, um, I, I, for apologetic purposes, it's sometimes relevant to you know uh, bring up look at the scripture historical critical historical critical way and, and and talk about how it correlates to history or how it doesn't that's especially important when it comes to Jesus you know because our, our faith in him is, is grounded in history but uh, when you're reading the Bible as God's word uh, I, bra- I I just bracket out all those considerations and I enter into the realism of the tech text I treat every character as literal uh, within the within the, the narrative because that's how they're presented uh, and I do that without weighing in on all the historical critical considerations about whether they actually existed or, you know, what, what, what is the truth about them? That is, that's a different project. I, I'm reading the Bible to hear God's mm-hmm. word. It's called a pretty critical way of reading the Bible. Uh, and it was practiced by, you know, the church up until the 15th and 16th century. Now we've, what's happened is people have just been trained to read the Bible in a critical way because we, we're, we have a historical consciousness. So we're always reading it kind of like, okay, here's the Bible story, but what really happened? Well, it, this is what Hans Freud called the eclipse of the biblical narrative. Uh, you won't hear the word, the, you won't read the Bible as God's word if you're always interjecting all these issues about how it relates to history. Mm-hmm. Now, way. for people who don't know your work, they need to realize that you're not saying this to someone who has just opted out of theological inquiry. Incro- you know the word I'm trying to say. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. You can say that because you've got a PhD from an Ivy League school in theology. So it's not like you've opted out of these conversations. You talk about the difference of historical critical method versus the theological interpretation of scripture. And, and, and right, that's right. another way to say what you were just describing, right? Right, 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 right. Yeah, I, the church always read the Bible. Uh, here's another issue. A, a lot of folks have this idea that, uh, you know, a Bible verse can't mean now what it didn't mean that. You have to find the, the author's original meaning and, and stick to it. And so that will be argued against my book because I'm saying that we can see things in a text that they early that the, the original authors couldn't see. Um, but but in fact, the church has always found multiple meanings in a text. I, they they interpret it through the faith of the church, and and, it, and it's called a theological interpretation of scripture. And but to get at that, to get at God's voice, uh, you 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 uh, don't let the historical critical issues 
constantly be determining what you do with the text. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm not opposed to the historical critical method. It has a role to play. I'm, I, that's, it's, that's fine. Uh, it's just that reading the Bible as God's word is a different yep. thing. But to read to read it as God's word doesn't mean every story has to be literally true. I mean, if this, say the story of Job is a parable, uh, that doesn't diminish yeah, well, the theological truth that's that's in the in the midst of it, right? No, 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 no that, that's that, that, that's my point. Is that uh, how it relates to history? It's true. It's true because it's God breathed. The narrative is true. Now, how it is historically true is a matter yeah. of debate. And some stories you can question them. Some stories you don't seem solid. But that's irrelevant when it comes to interpreting the whole thing as God's word and hearing God's yeah. voice. And, and so, again, I love that you're reading this through the lens of Christ, not just Christ, but Christ crucified. Like, that's the center of which, and that's why you had to lay the foundation you did to get to this. Yeah. Um, right, right. When people go, okay, I can see the self-sacrificial love of God in Jesus crucified. It's harder to get there when it's not Jesus, not God being the the victim, but the perpetuator of violence. But you would argue, is it fair to say you would argue that God has violence done against God by letting God be misconstrued in the way that these texts describe God? Yeah, yeah. Well, it, 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 that's a very good point. Wait, wait, wait. Way to go, Luke. Uh, the whole thing is, <laughs> I mean, enter into the pain and must have caused God to... Uh, he always told people, if you'll trust me, you'll never have to lift the sword. And you know, if you'll trust me, you know, I'm going to take care of you. But they couldn't do it. And, and they kept on projecting onto him their violence um, and, and making him into the image of a typical ancient Eastern God. And as always is the case, when you have a violent image of God, you're going to be engaging in violence. And so he, his people are you know, slaughtering each other and slaughtering their neighbors. And then they get slaughtered. It, Imagine the grief that that caused God and the patience it required of him. And, and this comes up sometimes in, in, in the Old Testament. Um, but yeah, he's suffering just as he suffers on the cross. He is the victim of violence, even in the Old Testament, precisely because they portray him as a perpetrator of violence. But then when Jesus comes into the world, um, uh, he, 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 does, he does come as the victim of violence. Um, and, and, and the reason here is now in the Old Testament, you we, we have to, by faith, Imagine his victimhood. Now it becomes mm-hmm. obvious, and the reason it becomes mm-hmm. obvious is because uh, uh, here he's exposing the lie, the, the whole lie. He's exposing the complete error of uh, all of those portraits of God that see him as the perpetrator of violence. And uh, this is where uh, Rene Girard uh, does. A, a, he's brilliant. Um, he's exposing the whole source of our violence and the scapegoat mechanism. And so to do that, he has to now come as the victim mm-hmm. of violence. He's been a victim all along, but now he's making it clear. And now God destroys the idea of redemptive violence. Yes. So that's off the table. I, I think the cross is the ultimate uh, reputation of... This is where, where uh, my view of the cross and a lot of people's view of the cross is completely different from like the penal substitution view where they think that God, the Father, had to take his wrath out on Jesus so he wouldn't take it out on us and that the Father was the one who killed Jesus uh, out of his wrath and uh, I would. I have a lot of issues with that yeah. view. I, I and your stuff about it, warfare theology is that the language you use? Yeah, or, yeah, well, yeah. Uh, warfare. Yeah, there, and so you do a lot of the Christus Victor stuff that um, has been so meaningful for so many of us. Yeah. Yeah, well, and that that actually plays a big role in the cruciform reinterpretation of these Old Testament portraits of God, um, because it, 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 you read 
when you read it through the lens of the cross, and especially in its, through the lens of the cross in its ancient Eastern context, you find that a lot of the portraits of God where God is just acting on his own and apparently using the earth to swallow people up or fire to incinerate people or the sea to drown people, uh, that there's actually demonic agents involved in that. Um, it, it's a, a classic case is, is Korah's Rebellion in Numbers 16, uh, where it, it says these people are kind of running a mutiny against Moses, and so it says the earth opened up its mouth and swallowed them. Uh, well, it looks like God just like caused an earthquake, and that's how a modern person would read it, even though the, the author doesn't actually say that. It just says the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them. Well, interestingly enough, Paul, in 1 Corinthians 10, verse 5, uh, he says, don't be like the grumblers, because uh, they, were, they, were they were killed by a destroying angel. Now, there's no destroying angel found in number 16, nor is there found in any episode of the grumblers who come under judgment. Uh, but Paul assumes that the killing was not done by God, but done by a destroying angel. And then when you look into the, the background of, of this passage, you find there's a lot of scholars who argue that when it says that the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them, we take it as a metaphor. But they would have taken it literally. Uh, the original audience, they believed in an earth, earth monster mm -hmm. uh, just on the surface of the earth. There's this God named Mott, and he's, like, he's the God of, uh, of the underworld. And his jaws, it says, reach up to the top of the, the, the surface of the earth. And, and uh, this is in, in, in Ugaritic literature now. And uh, see, he sometimes swallows people alive. Um, and so they, they would have seen this as, as a demonic kind of being. In fact, in the narrative itself, they, the people, uh, after they see these folks swallow, they say, run away or the earth is going to swallow us too. So they believe in this earth monster. Well, that correlates with this destroying angel. There's something demonic that, that, that was actually doing the killing here. My, my, my point is that in all of God's judgments, the violence, just like on the cross, the God didn't do any of the violence. It was a violent judgment, but God didn't carry out the violence. It, it, that all came through humans working at, under the influence of principalities and powers. So also in all of God's judgments, the violence is the result of human beings and or of, of uh, principalities and powers who are acting violent and carrying out their evil wills um, against people. Okay. Let me transition right now. I want you to take off your scholar hat and the, the fancy regalia and all that stuff that you wear to be PhD, Greg Boyd. And now I want you to put on your preaching clothes, your best T-shirt and worn out jeans that you preach in. And I want you to tell me how you preach the story of Jericho, where walls come crumbling down, Israelites go in, they kill all the people. H how do you preach that story with a cruciformed hermeneutic? Okay, uh... Well, I've never preached it, but I'll, I'll, I'll try to. I got, got to put in my preacher's guide. Wait, here. you've never uh, preached it? All right. You've never, uh, you've never you. preached Jericho before? No, 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 no not a cruise form reading of it. Uh, I've been just working on this for 10 years okay. now. So, hey. okay, that's for the Battle of Jericho. So it'd be something like this. It, it's, and this is how it is for, for all, 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 all the portraits of God um, that, are, that are violent. That uh, there's a prince of power out there that's always seeking to kill, steal, and destroy. Uh, he's a royal lion seeking who may devour. Uh, the principles of power operate in this world like gravity operates. If I want a ball to drop, then I, I don't uh, um, uh, have to throw it down. I just let it go, and, and it goes that way. So I don't think God ever has to act violently. There's plenty of violence to go around. For, for violence to happen, God simply has to stop doing something, namely preventing the violence. And so you find this theme throughout the, 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 the Bible where God's holding the forces of evil at bay. And if God, God ever for a moment withdraws, uh, then then the forces do what they want to do. They devour whom they can devour. Uh, and But God always is going to be involved in that in terms of using it to further his own purposes, just like he does like with governments in Romans 13. 
uh, he, he uses that for his own purposes. Uh, and always you're going to use evil to judge evil, uh, which is what happens on the cross. Uh, he uses Satan's own evil to self-implode the kingdom of darkness. So the destruction there, God would have loved to have the Canaanites migrate off the land in a natural way, but his children went up to it. So now God's plan has got to go forward uh, by, uh, by means of Israel's violence. And God's going to be playing in uh, and, and around all of that. Uh, and so uh, there comes a time where um, God withdraws his protective hand, and now the principalities and powers are allowed to do what they, they want to do in terms of tearing down the walls, and God's people are going to carry out the violence that's in their heart, believing sincerely that, that Yahweh told them to do this, because uh, Moses said so. Um, they, they're going to go carry out this kind of violence. And um, yeah, uh, that, 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 re that reflects the ugliness of that portrait, slaughtering every man, woman, child in Jericho, that reflects, uh, tells us a whole lot about the sin that God is bearing. What reveals God is the fact that he was willing to stay in a covenantal relationship with these people, even though this is how they viewed him. Uh, and, and so that shows us that God, Jesus Christ is the same yesterday, today, and forever. He's always been doing what he does on the cross. He's always been willing to stoop as low as necessary, to, take, to bear the sin of his people, and take on an appearance that, that mirrors that, that ugly sin. And now we'll stand as we sing, just as I am. That's a good sermon right there. <laughs> you know, you could have just said, God predestined it, and just move on. That could have been <laughs> your... <laughs> I should have said that. I forgot that part. Yeah, yeah. Oh, shoot. That's a lot easier. It well, is. you know, we, we, we should have had you on when we were doing a, a Process Theology versus Open Theism podcast, and you could have reined in on that one, too. Um, process, yeah. I know, I know. I've read your stuff on it. I'm on, I'm on board with what you're, I'm picking up what you're putting down. Okay, so I, I, I like this reading. I love that it's, it's based on the cross and that you're not trying to justify, it can't be justified, and you're moving past redemptive violence, and ultimately the idea is that Jesus and violence, they just don't mix. Um, no. Okay, let me tell you a story. You like stories? I love stories. Okay, so this Sunday, uh, Ian Cron is preaching for me. Do you know Ian Cron? No. Okay, he's a, he's a guy who's preaching. I, he's a writer. He's written some stuff. Um, uh, okay, I, and so what I'm doing is I'm in the, uh, covering our singles class. Never done it before. And so our singles minister said, all right, write questions. Luke will come in and answer them, which is always a fun thing to do. And uh, so I just got the cards this, today, and uh, I got one of the cards, and it says, how do we reconcile the violence in the Old Testament with the pacifism that Jesus preached? So I'm just going to play this podcast for him. And I'll just, or what I could do is say, here, here's 650 pages. You read this. <laughs> and then next week we'll read the other 650 pages. <laughs> They'll do it. Okay. So you, if you're given the two minute answer, are you going to say something to the extent of God we best understand is Jesus in the New Testament? I, I'm going to let you say, how would you do that in, in a two minute question to a 22 year old who just filled out that question asked you? Here's all that, that all scripture, uh, Jesus is the full revelation of God, uh, what God's like. So just lock that in. God always looks like Jesus dying on the cross. And that God is nonviolent. But Jesus also says all scripture bears witness to the cross. So you wonder, how is that possible? Well, notice that on the cross, God appears very ugly. Uh, the ugliness doesn't reveal God. It's when we look with faith that we can see that what, what reveals God is that God is willing to bear that ugliness, step into that ugliness, become that ugliness. He became our sin, became our curse. And that reveals what God's always like. Let's read the Bible through that lens. Where else does God appear really ugly 
uh, on the surface, but we because he's burying the sin of people. But we can look through it and see the beauty of God who steps into that, and that's what those uh, those ugly pictures of God are about. Uh, God appears ugly in the Old Testament for the same reason he appears ugly on the cross. And he appears beautiful in the Old Testament for the same reason he appears beautiful on the cross. If you're willing to believe uh, and look through that surface to see that sin-bearing God. I got that done in, in yeah. less than one minute. You've got plenty of time to, to take on uh, the myth of a Christian nation now. You've got time left <laughs> over. Those are God for me. Okay, that's, that's great. Now, Tony Jones has said that he's never seen someone work harder on a project than you on this book. It's a decade-long labor of love. Are you ever going to write again, or is this like, you're done? Like, yeah. you write a book that's 1,200 pages, you're like, I'm, I'm out. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. Uh, there's, there's times where I feel like that. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to enjoy the reprieve a little bit, but uh, I've got other things that are burning in my heart that I, I will eventually get around to picking up. you realize that this book was started uh, 10 years ago as a summer break from a different project I'm working on. Uh, that I've been working on for about ten years, um, and and uh, yeah, so I, I'm going to get back to that project. Wait, what? I, what other project is there? This is it's it's called the Myth of the Blueprint. Um, it was supposed to be published in 2003, <laughs> and and it, it's also a massive project. And I just took a break. I'm ADD, okay, so this is like the 14th break I've taken, but this is a 10 year break. Uh, <laughs> it was supposed to be done in 2003, and you. <laughs> Yeah, yeah, I know. I'm under contract for it too. <laughs> you... It's supposed to be published in 2003. It's yeah, I'm a little behind. <laughs> I've written seven books in the meantime. Okay, so I, I just keep on getting distracted. <laughs> oh, this is outstanding. I hope. Um, yeah, I can find a publisher who's as uh, flexible and loving as whoever that is that lets you stop a book that was due 14 years ago. I know it. I know. Well, well, two of the books that I published, I published for them. So either you let me do it while I was. Okay. Yeah. Is the 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 blueprint one? Is that uh, some of the open theism stuff? Is that where you're going? Well, no. I, I want to show that the classical view of God. Uh, a lot of people claim this, but I want to actually show it. How it is it arises? The classical view of God's view of God is timeless and immutable yeah. and impassable yeah. and you know omni omni controlling and omni all that stuff. And I want to show how all of that is a result, not of uh, people interpreting the Bible, but the result of the influence of Hellenistic philosophy. Yeah. Uh, and I'm going to trace those strands. It's a massive project because I'm going all the way back to the pre-Socratics and showing how the whole Hellenistic project, you know, kind of points in this deterministic direction and this guy, this idea of God outside of time and untouchable. And, and then how that's so very meticulously how that creeps into the early church. And finally, in St. Augustine becomes sort of the dominant narrative about who God is. I, that, that's great. I, your stuff on open theism was actually, I think, my introduction to you. Uh, I'm trying to remember. Have you written stuff? Did you do like what? It, have you written on that before? Yeah. Didn't the God possible? Satan, the problem of evil. Yeah, yeah. Is got to blame. But you started that. That's probably what I read 20 years ago or 15 years ago, right? Yeah. Okay. Yeah, yeah. That's that goes back to the 90s. Okay, <laughs> the 90s. Um, <laughs> Which I was alive. Don't act like I'm not old enough to be there. Okay, so we need to talk about that some other time. Uh, but right now, your book, Crucifixion of the Warrior God, two vo- it's like you get two books for the price of one really big book. Um, <laughs> that's awesome. Well, great. I, I, I'm impressed they were able to publish it that cheaply. I mean, that's, I, it was on Amazon. I don't know if it still is, but it was on, on sale for Amazon for like 39 bucks for, for both volumes. That's, I was like, yeah, that's, usually a book, 
One of those volumes would have cost 50. But, so they did a good job. Hey, thanks, Fortress kind of, Press. Thanks, Tony Jones, for giving us a good deal on this. Uh, and, and this is really... I think when I got connected to your work, it was because you were someone who could do the pastoral work, being a pastor, being a preacher, but also wade into the theological world. And this is really you put on your theological cap and doing some serious you know, theological discussion that I think will probably lead to um, a lot of people reading this over many years. So w- well done on that. Thanks for your work on I this. Say that. I, I should probably mention that that, you know, that is written for scholars, or at least for you know, people who are academically inclined. Uh, I'll be coming out with a popular version of it uh, August 15th. Um, it's, it'll, be, it'll be called Cross Vision. And it, that's a mere 200 pages or so. So it, it's, a, it, it's, a, it's a very readable book. I put things in more in story form, a lot more illustrations. Mm. No, take out a lot of the footnotes, all, almost all the footnotes. So I might send an angry text message to Tony Jones when we get off this phone call. If you would have told me, I could just read the 200-page <laughs> one that comes out in three months. Anyway. Yeah, but, but see, you know, look, because you're a brainiac, you, you, you want to, you uh, this is where you get all the scholarship, you know, and, and you cross every T and dot every I. And, yeah. Uh, it, uh, and the popular book, you kind of just have to trust me when I say, hey, scholars say. The, the academic one, I show it. Yeah. So. Oh, that's neat. I, I like that you can wear both hats. That's uh, that's good. I appreciate that. All right. I appreciate that. Greg, thank you so much for the time. Thanks for writing this book. It's been an honor. I appreciate you inviting me on. Yeah. I'll do it again sometime. For sure. All right, friends, hope you enjoyed that one. Also, don't forget our sponsor for this episode, Podbean, the all-in-one podcast publishing and hosting platform. It's the easiest way to get started in podcasting. And Podbean's mobile app for Android and iOS allows podcasters to record and publish podcasts right from their phone. So go check it out. We'll see you next time. Thanks for checking out Newsworthy with Norsworthy. Make sure to subscribe to the podcast on iTunes. We'll see you back here next time.